You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome to the final uh, event of the year for the Ellison Center. Uh, today we have Justin Lifflander, who we're fortunate to have in town. And because he has a complicated and interesting biography, I'm going to simply let him introduce himself. So feel free to talk for uh, as long as you want to, and then we'll leave some time for Q&A. Okay. Um, thank you, Scott. So yes, I'm Justin Lifflander. I, um, uh, I've been living in Russia for 30 years. That's sort of my main credential as far as uh, being with you today. Um, I got a degree in Soviet government from Cornell University, and right after that, in 1987, I moved to the Soviet Union and never managed to find my way back. Um, I think uh, I've had a number of very interesting experiences, many of which I'll tell you about today. Um, I had a wonderful early career of wanting to become an intelligence officer, which did not work out, fortunately. Uh, 20 years with Hewlett-Packard, when a very amazing time in the Russian market when you could sell many things to many people and really not have to do uh, bribing uh, much at all. And uh, I was lucky then to join the Moscow Times, which was uh, and still is Russia's leading daily English language newspaper, although it's no longer daily um, and independent, uh, still relatively independent and had a very good journalistic education and experience there. Um, and then I spent a year with uh, a company called IFK Sistema, which is one of the uh, oligarchs, Mr. Yevtushenkov, who, um, when he was ready to review the business plan for our media company, unfortunately had been put under house arrest because the government wanted to take away his oil company. So um, that put a kind of damper on our business success. And after a year of that, I gave up and I've been involved in some uh, individual private writing projects and some philanthropy projects. So um, with that, I'll start my little show here. And um, I, I just want to emphasize what a phenomenal honor it is to be at the Jackson School. I uh, grew up with Scoop Jackson as one of my heroes. My father was his New York State campaign manager and, and uh, good friends. Um, I remember stuffing envelopes in, uh, for the campaign and even accidentally wandering onto stage in, when he won New York, the primary, much thanks to my dad's efforts, and Scoop picking me up and saying, Matt, I found your kid. And uh, his AA was a fantastic Washington character named Don Donahue, was a big help in my, my early career, my aspirations to become something in the world of intelligence. So um, it's uh, really great to be here. I also happened to notice that when I was walking over here, you have a red square of your own, and I'm really glad that it's possible to express myself freely near yours as opposed to mine. Um, but even in the West, I, the last time I gave this lecture was a place called Rusi in London. It's sort of a think tank attached to Whitehall. And it was also set up by uh, a friend. And I didn't quite know what I was getting into. And it turned out they were both Ukrainian and Russian diplomats in the audience. And uh, I thought they were going to come to blows, but they didn't get a chance to because the moderator was a Romanian who had enough of my <laughs> pro-Russian comments and kind of cut me off in mid-speech. So if there's any kind of tension here, please take it outside. Um, right. So um, basically what I'll do is tell you a bit about my romantic earlier uh, work, uh, how I got to Russia. Um, share some of the nitty-gritty of my experience in implementing the INF Treaty, uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was uh, a very famous uh, success in relations between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. 
and then share some thoughts about current Russian thinking um, to the extent that I'm confident to do that. So yeah, I mean, and for me, it's a story of extremes. Um, first, we have me, who was a hardcore neoconservative Democrat, cold warrior, ready to become uh, some kind of super person uh, defending against the evil empire. And now I'm a Russian citizen. Um, so I'll try to explain how that happened. Uh, we have Ronald Reagan, who went from the evil empire to uh, trust but verify. He certainly went through some significant changes, too. And um, as debatable, you know, is it really a Cold War now or not? I think one of the features that's beginning to appear on the Russian side is a new ideology. So if an ideology is an element of the Cold War, it's beginning to form itself. Um, and we can talk about that more. So yeah, my hero is, of course, James Bond, but actually more the guy on the right. Anybody know who that is? Older folks? Greg Morris, playing the role of Barney Collier in Mission Impossible. Uh, he was my, my hero. He could blow up or bug or, or baffle his way out of any situation. And while normal high school kids were, were talking to girls, I was spying on them with infrared glasses that I made through windows and bugging the bathroom and taking over the PA system. So that was my childhood. So it was not unusual that when I went to university, I was someone recommended one should study an interesting language. I took up Russian. And I mean, this is a great time to be a Kremlinologist, 83, 80, 84, 85. Reagan was, was in full bloom of his, his anti-Soviet rhetoric. Soviets had shot down their KL-007, uh, and I went off to college. Um, Pershing deployment, the deployment of the uh, intermediate-range missiles in Europe was, was beginning and going on in that period in response to the Soviets' um, strength there. Uh, we were losing general secretaries left, right, and center. Uh, Brezhnev, uh, Andropov, Chernenko, and incomes. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in 85. Um, Reagan and Gorbachev had their first summit in Geneva, which I actually participated remotely in because as I was an intern at the State Department, I was writing briefing papers, and you had these fantastic uh, criminologists who couldn't really talk at a very basic level, and here's this college student, um, and they said, you know, um, Mrs. Reagan wants to learn something about the Soviet Union before she goes to Geneva. And so we'd like you to write a paper on women and education, very simple language. I was like, I do that, no problem. And uh, I was kind of pleased that the first lady wanted to find a common language with uh, her counterpart. Um, so that was a great experience. Uh, 86, uh, Russia, Soviet Union made itself felt throughout all of Europe with some radioactive waste. Um, and I also did an internship at the FBI in their counterintelligence division. Which was a very interesting time, and I kind of solidified my interest to continue down that path. And um, shortly after I arrived in Moscow, um, Reagan and Gorbachev in Washington signed the INF Treaty. So, um, lots of great propaganda from that time. This is the uh, genie of um, the strategic defense initiative. No, the genie of, of um, missile defense coming out of the strategic defense initiative bottle. Um, and uh, Soviets, and to this day, are still fanatically opposed to missile shields and things like that. Um, but that was one of the nice pictures from the Soviet side. But it, in reality, it was a very dangerous time because you had tactical, uh, not tactical, strategic, short, um, intermediate range missiles looking at each other in Europe and uh, certainly increased the chances of, of something going wrong. Um, US had its own kind of propaganda. As you can see, I have this hanging on my wall at home. Um, and uh, you know, Reagan was in full bloom with his, his, uh, 
rhetoric. Hello, Americans. I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever and begin bombing in five minutes. According to my research, when he said that off mic, but it got publicized, the Soviet uh, Eastern Division of their military went on alert. I mean, you're the leader of the free world, you make jokes like that. It was a, a tense time. Um, but there was one good thing that came out of this is I got a job after college because... Um, I know, American. I'm pleased to tell you today. Um, because of that disagreement between Reagan and Gorbachev um, in... The fall of 86, Reagan uh, PNG'd 80 diplomats from, kicked out of, of um, the country, 80 diplomats from the Soviet consulate at the UN, the mission in the UN, I think it was, in New York. And instead of, sounding familiar like what we've had recently, instead of um, uh, kicking out 80, 80 diplomats from the US em uh, embassy, um, what Gorbachev did was he took away all the Soviet employees, 250 employees that were working at the US embassy in Moscow. The embassy ground to a halt because the 221 or 26 diplomats that were officially allowed to be there, they didn't know how to drive cars, cook, clean. So Reagan said, and he took away 90 of those diplomats and replaced them with 90 contractors who had diplomatic status. Um, and while I was wondering, a little distressed because I didn't get to join the CIA because I smoked too much marijuana in high school, and they said check back later in two years, and I was already graduating, I had every intention of checking back. Um, I decided to take one of these jobs. It was advertised, a great advertisement. There was a cartoon with um, a sign that said USMC Moscow Motor Pool, a limousine in parts, a little leg sticking out from underneath, and a matronly lady standing next to it saying, would Mr. Ambassador like some hors d'oeuvres? Mrs. Ambassador made them herself. <laughs> and that was their advertisement. And my best friend made me this drawing of how he figured my life would look like working as a driver mechanic at the US Embassy in Moscow. With voluptuous KGB lady looking at me across the street and me standing next to a disheveled, decrepit building. And this was not far from the, the truth. It was a very tense time. Very tense time, but still in, in the relations, actually in, in uh, October when I arrived. There was supposed to be this new build, building built. This was a project where the State Department Foreign Building Office decided to save money and hire these Soviets to pour the concrete. Right. Um, the Soviets did not allow the Americans to pour the concrete at the new embassy in Washington. This shell of the building was just one giant microphone with all sorts of interesting things buried in the cement and the project stopped and it took 10 or 15 more years and it's only in the past 5 or 10 years in my recollection that the new building was finished and this building was chopped in half and they used the secure, made the secure facility up top but um, that was some good planning and your tax dollars at work sorry jumbles here right um so it was a great time because you had these 90 contractors. All of them, almost all of them were people like me who had degrees and some had masters and PhDs. And you couldn't get and live in the Soviet Union at the time unless you were one of the few students that were on an exchange. You know, these people wanted to go there. So they got this great core of young people doing these crazy jobs. I was a driver mechanic. Um, the labor crew was all with degrees in Russian language. Um, and they even made their own sort of secret footage of life in the Soviet Union, which I'll just share with you if I'm allowed to. They're going shopping. The quality is terrible, but it is to look at the products. I'm not, in, not inhibited to give his opinion. And if you can see that, it's like racing like that in there. complain about. He's got no food in the store. 
This is the absolute lowest level of Maslow's scale. And if anyone is ever wondering why sanctions won't work, I mean, these people wipe their asses with newspapers for 70 years. Just, they don't care about cheese and things like that. I mean, it's nice to have, but you know, this is. I can give you the long version. I mean, it's amazing to see the haircuts that people have and stuff like that. So anyway, um, yeah, Reykjavik, you know, apparently not the success that it could have been or wanted, but there was one minor point that was agreed on called on-site inspection, which is something the Soviets, from my understanding, had rejected for years and years and years, was the idea of letting one side up to the gates of the other side's factory or, or to their missile sites and, and touch and feel and confirm that there's nothing there. And apparently at Reykjavik, that was agreed on as a concept. And finally, in December of 87, Gorbachev and Reagan met in Washington and signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, and that eliminated all intermediate range nuclear missiles from 500 to 5,500 kilometer range. Uh, and it's fantastic achievement. This wasn't reducing numbers, this entire class gone and allowing very intrusive inspection procedures. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and uh, a great achievement. They, they had become, earned a certain mutual respect for each other. And the question is, how did they get there? Um, you know, this is my view of, of how they found a common language, uh, particularly from the, the American side. Um, Reagan ended the detente concept of sort of dancing around each other and being polite. But at the same time, he did delinkage of, of not associating all these human rights issues with, with difficult issues around arms negotiations. And he started showing strength with his strategic defense initiative and, and investment and, and uh, the, the Pershing missiles. Uh, another big factor was, I think, uh, Reagan's opinion of Thatcher and Thatcher's opinion of Gorbachev. I think what was the phrase? She said, this is a man we can do business with. And I think he listened to her and, and kept an open mind. And as I said, from my experience at the State Department in 1985, the things we were tracking very closely, glasnost and perestroika and changes of cadres and so forth, and showing respect, I mentioned the idea that the First Lady, you know, my own personal experience, wanted to, to, to be able to speak intelligently with her counterpart. Uh, compromise, uh, typical diplomatic work, but not through the media, but in, in real negotiations and, and so forth, like the, the agreement about on-site inspection. Uh, Reagan, in his later years, became this kind of idealist with the vision for a better future, and, and uh, I think that, that's something he uh, was, was able to elicit in Gorbachev as well. And I, I quote here some principles based on what I've read about George Schultz and, and you know, his advice or, or activities at that time. You know, that concept of meeting your counterpart is not evidence of weakness, um, whether it's perhaps meeting the fellow from North Korea or whatever. We're, we don't agree with you, but we're going, to not, we're, we're going to talk to you. We're not going to snub you because we don't agree with you. And the hand-in-hand -hand concept of, of economic development goes with political openness. I think those were two key elements of, of the Schultz approach. So bottom line is uh, we got rid of 2,679 missiles. Um, being the Russians, they had to have twice as many as us, um, FS-20 being the primary one. Uh, and this was done in a number of processes. The first line, one was called baseline inspection, in which basically what was stated in the treaty and where it is and so forth was reconfirmed, like, yes, okay, you really do have those there, um, eliminating um, those missiles that were to be eliminated. Um, short notice inspections uh, where these teams of inspectors on both sides had the right with 24 hours to show up in Moscow, Ulan-Ude, or Magna, or Washington, and there be taken into the country to wherever they said and make sure that no more missiles had appeared there. And then the final part was this portal monitoring concept 
in which each side got to pick a factory on the other side uh, and set up for 13 years up to 30 inspectors, li literally living at the gate of a missile factory to make sure that no more of these forbidden missiles came out. Um, here's an interesting map of, of where uh, INF sites were in the Soviet Union. Um, I think we're still waiting for the thank you note from the Chinese. Half these missiles were pointed at China, not at Europe, as, as we learned in the process. Well, the Japanese sent thank you notes. They, they, uh, they felt that they were... Um, Threatened to. Good point. Good point. Yeah, they're right off there on the East Coast. They, uh, uh, that, uh, they were briefed. Uh, uh, they followed the, the, the negotiations as closely as the Europeans did. Very good point. Yeah, I mentioned that in the past. But yeah, and, and you've got the Japanese there and these other bases on the south south border. Um, bottom line, Reagan and Gorbachev had become relatively close in terms of being world leaders and respecting each other. Uh, and Reagan decided to come to Moscow in May 88 to exchange ratified treaties. Uh, one of the pranksters at the embassy used an early version of Photoshop to make this Reagan and Gorbachev figure and post it on the wall. Fortunately, some diplomat had pulled it down before Reagan showed up. But I thought it was pretty creative for 1988 technology. Um, as I said, the agenda was to, to exchange these, these ratified treaties. Um, my, I had my own agenda. I was rather hungry because this was a time in Moscow where even for hard currency, it was hard to find good food. And when Reagan came in two or three weeks in advance of hundreds of people, security, valets, and so forth, I did notice a creative cantaloupe. And I set my sights on getting hold my hand in one of those. And uh, I, I used up some of my 15 minutes of fame the night after uh, Reagan came to town. He was met. Uh, airport, handshaking. Um, he was sleeping in Spasso House, and at 6 a.m. I was on duty as a driver, and I came up to the Filipino ballet group, uh, which are part of the U.S. Navy that take care of the president, and the great cantle flop the corner, and um, I said, is there anything I can do for you before the president wakes up? I said, you know, the president really likes to see himself in the local newspapers of any country he comes in. East. And um, it wasn't hard. There were only four or five newspapers, and I ran to the drove off to the kiosk and picked them up and brought them back and still at 7 a.m. eyeing these cantaloupe and I said, would you like me to translate the captions underneath? Because I realized the translator is still asleep and I will never forget this valet looked at me and says, Justin, really the president only likes to look at pictures. <laughs> so that was my lesson and I didn't get my cantaloupe and um, that's how things went. So anyway, they exchanged treaties uh, the next day. Um, that's uh, my also good acquaintance, Pavel Palashenko, was the translator with a mustache you saw all the time in Gorbachev's side. He actually, his company translated the Russian version of my book. So I was very pleased about that. But they did find this common language. This is a shot of them doing a baseline inspection. The American inspectors always had these nice blue coats. So it was absolutely civilian gear. These are all military intelligence people who knew what Russian missiles looked like. And they measured them and, and uh, verified that that's what was claimed. Um, this is a, an elimination um, destruction uh, tank from uh, the Longhorn Test Range in Texas at the bush watching one of the American missiles be destroyed by static firing. But um, sometimes the missiles were crushed, uh, sometimes they were fired different ways. Um, let's talk about portal monitoring, which was my area of expertise. Uh, so this is a map from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from around 85. You see these pink areas are closed areas. Foreigners are not allowed in there. And that really covers all the borders. And yeah, OK, of course, you could possibly try and get here, but to get here you have to go through the pink city, so you're not going there. So about 90% of the country was closed to foreigners in general. Um, and the Americans picked as their site for INF monitoring, I think it's right here, about 1,200 kilometers east of Moscow, 
in the Republic of Udmurtia, um, the capital city, which is Izhevsk, which is the home to the Kalashnikov uh, factory. Um, and another hour east is the little town of Votkinsk, which was the home to Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. That's where he was born. His father was a manager at this age-old industrial concern in, in the 1800s, 17, no, 17, 18, anyway, around then, a long time ago. And uh, he actually, many Russians think that Tchaikovsky was born in Klin, because this was a closed area and you know, they didn't want anyone really going there. Um, but he um, was actually born there and spent the first couple of years of his life in Vodkinsk. Um, and I just was reading recently a little footnote to history that one of the main drivers of the uh, implementation of SS-20s in Europe was Defense Minister Ustinov, Dmitry, I think his name was. And he was promoting a change in the, in the uh, late 70s of the way, letting the military make decisions about what kind of weapons are made and giving that over to the military industrial complex, including the design bureaus. Um, and this is an excellent, I think it's called pork barreling in, in American political terms, because Ustinov was from Udmurtia, and his factory, the Vodkin's factory, was the one making the SS-20s. Yeah. I never realized that before. But, um, Anyway, the, the factory in Vodkinsk was famous for making solid rocket motor fuel uh, things, and I think also Scuds. If you're wondering what an Udmurt looks like, now you know. Um, it's kind of a blend, I think, of American Indians and leprechauns. Um, very nice, uh, very friendly people, often red hair, um, kind of ergic uh, uh, origins, and they would always greet us with accordions um, and so forth. This is the town of Watkinsk, uh, a very common setup in the Soviet Union, and, and of course it benefited from the evacuation of industry um, uh, during World War II to the Urals, but it was already there. I'd say the factory was founded in 1780-something, Tchaikovsky's house. We had to make these maps. There were no maps. So the inspectors were making their own maps. Uzhevsky Airport, 50 kilometers this way, downtown. We had a functioning mosque. Um, here's the main old factory that made various things, baby carriages included, but mostly military hardware. And 12 kilometers outside of town um, was the, uh, what used to be called just shop number 95, but in honor of the treaty, it got named the Vodkinsk Machinistritin Zavod. P.O. was here, and the Vemze was out there, um, and got the status of becoming a full factory instead of the secret factory. It was no longer a secret. Um, but literally, if you talk to people in Ijevs, they didn't know what was being manufactured in Vodkins. Um, nice little town, um, with a certain dilapidated majesty to it. These are kids who, uh, on this, they called it the Prud, which means pond in Russian, but a full-size lake. And in the summer, kids would play there and try and practice their English with us. They'd never seen foreigners before. Um, so 30 American, mostly men, uh, five military and 25 contractors moved to this facility that was built specially for us out in the woods 12 kilometers further. Um, just a, a snapshot of the town, the irony was we found these little wooden, called izbas in Russian, wooden shacks, houses, very quaint. The Russians were desperately embarrassed about them, they wanted to show us the Khrushchevki, the brick buildings that were made by socialism and uh, so forth. And they had on the embankment, they had buildings made by German POWs, but they didn't like us taking pictures of these. Um, side note, um, the term in Russian is monogorod, or single industry town. Many towns still in Russia suffer from this problem. If their industry is not doing well, the town is not doing well, and Votkinsk was like that. Um, it had a, a really local hero by the name of Sadovnikov, who was the director when the factory was made. He'd been the director of 20 years. Um, very interesting character who got to travel to Utah to visit the sister thing at the start of the treaty. And he basically came back and he told the communist leadership, and he was a hardcore, lifelong communist, defending the fatherland with the wonderful weapons that he made. 
But he said, you know, I've seen communism. I've seen socialism. Americans have it. These workers live in nice houses. They go shopping. And, you know, we, we're just struggling. And, and they basically shoot him out. Um, he got Parkinson's and wound up shooting himself in the head on the steps of this thing while I was there. Um, but someone, a victim of, uh, of, of perestroika, you might say, because all the changes in the country were just too much for him. So this is the uh, map of the facility out, out in the woods. We traveled 12 kilometers out. The only thing you see is a sad little road and a rail line and some very large power lines, which you kind of wonder, oh, look at them, gas lines, feeding this, this large industrial thing over here. And this was all built outside the gate to save time. It's got this picture of just this desolate gate, but um, a whole facility of these two-story buildings, um, three housing buildings named after Lincoln, Jefferson, and Washington. Um, the Roosevelt Building was our common building. We had a TV lounge and kitchen. The Soviets controlled two buildings on either side of us. This is we had something called admin escorts. That's a treaty term, escort. Um, young ladies who would take care of us uh, in terms of showing us around on social <laughs> programs. <coughs> the cargo scan, a very interesting element of verification. Uh, I'll come back to that in a little bit. There's a giant machine for X-raying missiles. Um, and yeah, we had this little tennis court. It was a little gilded cage with video cameras all around us monitoring us. There was nowhere to wander off to anyway. Um, but uh, it was where we lived nine weeks on, three weeks off. That was part of the, the routine. Um, yeah, and, and I probably forgot to mention, I moved there. I, I finished, uh, I quit the embassy job to get a better paying, more exciting role in, uh, in INF, and I became the janitor's chef. Um, gardener and missile inspector. I literally had four different tasks I could do in the course of any guy. I was hired as a janitor, but the, one of the chefs got sacked for drinking on the job, and so I got oh. to be deputy. And uh, Roland LaJoy was very much opposed to alcohol. We thought it was something else, and it's just his father was an alcoholic, so that was the general who ran the American program. But try and live in the Soviet Union as an honored guest without alcohol, it just doesn't work. Um, so it's just a picture of one of the little buildings that we had. And this is the gate itself, the portal. Uh, really not very exciting thing where um, we have a vehicle entrance and rail entrance. Um, the rail entrance was the one that was interesting because that's where the missiles would come out. Um, and this whole idea of allowing the enemy to live at your most sensitive thing, really remarkable achievement. Uh, and ironically, it seems that, so the Soviets, for example, when you had diplomatic inviolability of your papers, but not of anything else. So when you came in, your luggage was inspected very carefully. There's a scene in my book where one young lady forgot to take out, um, the American side forgot to take out her personal relaxation device. And she had to explain to the Soviet customs guy in Moscow what, what this dildo was and what its purpose was. And he just couldn't understand. She's one young lady living with 25 men. Why does she need this? But um, they thought our, our dental floss was fiber optic cable. Um, so, but they, I mean, there was much, as much fun on the Soviet side. The American, the FBI was just absolutely crazy about this project. And um, they built a barn at the edge of the Soviet compound in Utah that was supposed to be a barn that the Soviets knew was there for monitoring. And they would kind of moo at it from time to time when they were in a good mood. Um, they re rejected completely the first list. So we would exchange lists of inspectors. And you know, this, the two centers, OSIA, uh, On-Site Inspection Agency, which was a newly made branch of the Defense Department, running the American side, and the Nuclear Risk Reduction Center, also under the Ministry of Defense on the Soviet side, would exchange lists of potential inspectors for all this work, uh, for the mo uh, portal monitoring. For uh, You just had a list of approved people. And you could reject people. And the Americans rejected all of the first Soviet list because it was filled with military intelligence, known military intelligence officers. 
So the OSIA had to point out, well, who else knows? That's, those are the people who know our weapons, and those are the people we're sending there. Um, so um, there were lots of gaps in the beginning on, on that topic. And of course, in the, um, we used to call them three-week mutants, because we would work, the contracts would work nine weeks and three weeks. The OSI people, which were known, would work three weeks. And then these other people would just kind of show up and they were from NSA or CIA or whatever, and it was a real bonus in their career to come and see the Lutkinsk factory and inspect missiles, and they would pray for a missile to come out. And they didn't always come out in a three-week period. Um, but it was uh, some fun. This is the center of uh, American treaty implementation. It's like a lunar landing module, um, and it controlled semaphore gates and traffic lights. It was very low-tech, which was a good idea. I mean, it was... It was um, simple and easy to maintain, and we'd watch this gate. And formally, we controlled what came out of the factory gate. I think it was 14 meters was the agreed norm that anything less than 14 meters we didn't inspect because you cannot fit a missile, an INF missile in there. Anything more than 14 meters we did inspect, and it was only on the rail car. This was, of course, the, the target. It was the uh, SS-25, which the factory was still making. And the strange thing was we were supposed to let these go and make sure that they didn't hide a smaller SS-20 inside the SS-25. Um, this is, a, at the time, a single warhead, three-stage uh, solid rocket motor that could make it to the United States in 15 minutes after being launched. Um, but it didn't look like that. I mean, it, the, the missile missiles were in these very nondescript rail cars, and the Soviets would declare a missile coming out, and we'd come out, and put on these smocks with the Mickey Mouse gloves that were supposed to be anti-static, and we'd measure using a hand measuring tape, as you can see here. Um, actually, me and him. Uh, hand measuring tape, the, the length to make sure, yes, it could contain a missile, and then they would open it up, and we'd go inside and measure the missile. Um, you can see the difference in this, you can't see it, but the difference in this wagon, which you'll see anywhere in the Soviet Union for carrying freight, is it has six axles, not three because it was so heavy, about 40 tons for a solid rocket motor. Um, <clears throat> and um, you could actually see the rail bed sink as the thing came out of the, the factory, which is going to go down a little bit from the weight. Uh, and what would happen was we had the right, I want to say six times a year, to pop the canister, which would mean make them park it in a little building and open up the, the canister itself with a missile. We would, every time we would go inside and measure the canister of the missile, and very little space. If you were claustrophobic or didn't like the smell of fresh green Russian military paint, you didn't go in there. But you'd measure the canister, which again fit a certain agreed norm, and say, yes, it's a missile. Or it seems to be a missile, is the real answer. Um, but you still didn't know if they weren't hiding a smaller missile inside the larger missile. And this was the only way to do it, which was this giant X-ray machine called Cargo Scan. And you can see it's basically X-raying two cross-sections to prove that those cross-sections are filled with solid rocket motor fuel and not um, the internal part. And we had a lot of negotiations to a very invasive thing. And the Soviets weren't doing this to us because the factory they picked was actually no longer making any missiles. So they would just check everything you know, of the right size coming out of there. But we inspected this whole uh, range of, of the latest intercontinental ballistic missiles, and I think you know, while we were there, they were moving to a Mod 3 with three warheads and stuff like that. There was one incident um, politically motivated when we, we were getting pressure from OSIA from a man named Jesse Helms, who was on the Armed Services Committee, I think. He was... Uh, for, I think it's Foreign Affairs. Foreign Affairs, okay. Um, and he was very unhappy in general with any kind of deal with the Soviets. He said, you're not verifying the treaty. And in some ways it was true. Until we started doing this, 
we couldn't be sure that there wasn't a smaller missile hidden inside a litter room. It would be a really dumb thing to do strategically to do that. But so, okay, we said it's ready, and the Soviets said it's not ready. We said it's ready, we said it's not ready. And we said the next thing you bring out of the factory, we're going to run through. And they said, no, you're not. And we wound up in this standoff, um, and nobody wanted to have to declare a treaty violation. And just so much work had gone into this. Um, they finally declared a treaty ambiguity, and, and they, they said, look, we lose X millions of rubles a day. We don't deliver this missile to the Ministry of Defense. And this town is based on this revenue primarily. And, and you know, we understood at the local level, but we declared an ambiguity. They took the missile away. And then two days later, a bunch of people flew in and agreed on the final technical details. And we used the system for the rest of the program. Um, but the newspapers in, in Washington reported, Evans and Novak reported that the Soviets put guns to our heads. I mean, each missile had a young kid with a machine gun. And while we were waiting the two days or whatever the period was, they put the machine gun down. We play football while we're waiting um, in, in the building. There was nobody putting any guns. And this was one of those lessons where we had to come back. Then the Soviets locally said, what, is this your free press or what? And we had to explain to them that's how it works. Sometimes. Possible urban legend. I think that uh, X-ray machine was developed at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, which is across the Sandia. Sandia, yeah, because I trained on it before I went. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they were lying. Another element of, um, they might have had some input to Sandia, I don't know. But another one of our very important tasks was to do a perimeter patrol around the factory um, twice a day, this is about five kilometers, to make sure that none of those 40-ton missiles had slipped out the back into the woods somehow. Um, that was fun. It was good recreation, and you got to get to know um, speaking or, or questions to? Uh, speaking. Speaking. Okay, yes, I will try to do that. Um, we had some famous friends out there. That's uh, Mikhail Kalashnikov, who was from Izhesk, who used to like to come out and visit us because he got to drive the uh, company Saab. I built a hot tub in the basement because I was bored. Um, I actually uh, went overboard and started looking for bugs in the basement uh, and tore down a wall. And then the Soviets came and inspected because they couldn't figure out where I'd made this hole, but they, uh, it was a seismic device for detecting digging in, in the buildings because these were right next to the factory. Um, and I put up my poster of Gorbachev to hide the hole. Um, we had a great social program. We taught them to play baseball. We got to go to a bar, which, as you can see, had a huge selection of items there. But um, the best part was the social program. They were both social escorts. Again, a real treaty term. Um, simple question when you take 30 single men and six attractive women, what happens? I was the first to get married. Um, not there, but I fell in love and, and took away the lady who was on my right arm. And we'll celebrate 26 years together next month. Um, about another five or six weddings came out of this uh, treaty. In fact, we began to rename it the International Nuptial Facilitator instead of I. Um, <laughs> right. So uh, I, mean, I left uh, because it was not acceptable to have an emotional relationship with one of your escorts um, and moved to Moscow. But the treaty uh, activity continued. Non-Luger kicked in, CTR, and for the next 20 years, some really fantastic work was done in terms of, of getting rid of lots of nasty uh, things and also creating a cooperation between a whole generation of military, um, diplomatic, and, and business people to implement this stuff. And there is this little kind of unofficial fraternity. We'll celebrate 30 years of INF in Washington this year. There's something that's going to be a strange celebration with both sides accusing the other of violating it. Um, country changed. Uh, and the relationship with the West also kind of got stained. Uh, I call it the squandered relationship. I mean, we went from Putin saying that uh, Russia would consider joining NATO to um, the US only wants vassals. In 2000, he also said that the US is, is uh, the main partner for, for Russia on, on the global 
uh, sphere. We had Hillary Clinton's reset, which was famously mistranslated as the overload, and Hillary calls Putin Hitler, which you just don't call a Russian Hitler. That's not the idea of what they went through in uh, World War II. Um, CTR, to the end of CTR. The thing that really is frightening from a diplomatic perspective, you know, late 80s, there were 86 simultaneous intergovernmental negotiations going on. In the end of 2014, there were none, period. No discussion between the two countries of anything of substance. Um, we used to have a great approval rating, and you can see where it is now. At, at the time, 1.15, uh, about 59% of Russians saw the U.S. as a threat, and 30-something saw the U.S. might actually attack them. Um, back to an old propaganda, at least until November of, of this past year. Um, how did this happen? Uh, I'll, I'll keep it short, but uh, I think the former Defense Secretary William Perry summarized it uh, the best when he said something to the effect of, you know, as of late in recent years, it's, it's Russia and Putin's aggression that has caused much of the damage to Russia, but before that, the, the, the reason uh, was basically uh, the American policy of, of kind of ignoring what the Russians care about. He cited various high-level administration officials under the question of NATO expansion, which I know is highly debated as to whether there was any commitment given to the Russians that NATO wouldn't expand, and very much of the opinion that there was an informal commitment, including a press conference given by Secretary of State James Baker in 1990 in Moscow, basically saying, we've agreed not to expand NATO towards your borders. But the literal reaction of people in the administration, I forget which official, it might have been Holbrook, who said, who cares what the Russians think? They're no longer a world power. Um, same thing for missile defense, and then this, this idea of promoting color revolutions and, and not respecting zones of influence, um, which sounds harsh. I mean, it would be nice if no one had to, but in reality, the US wouldn't put up with a, a, milita a Chinese military base being built in Cuba, not to mention a Russian one, I don't think. So there is some inherent uh, respect for zones of influence. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot of my view of some Russian fundamentals uh, mentality, um, which many of you have heard of, read of, and so forth. But I honestly believe that Russians are conflict-averse, um, particularly after experience in World War II. Anyone you know, over the age of 45, the number one thing they, you ask, what do you want, is, is peace and, and to get along. And that sounds very strange, looking at Russia's behavior for the last couple of years. But keep in mind, we have a disconnect between what the Russian government does and what people want. Um, because people are not empowered. And they very much want less tension with the US. I, I find it fun when people ask me, say, well, why are, do the Russians meddle in an election? Because they want to have a relationship with the United States. Because the, tr Trump was the only one saying, we'll, we'll find a common language with those people. Um, it's, it's absolutely twisted thinking. I'm not arguing that, but that, that's what's behind it, I think. Um, fatalism has just been around for a thousand years in, in Russian thinking. Even now, I have trouble getting friends to put on seatbelts. Well, if I meant to die, then the seatbelt's not going to help me, is it? Yeah, okay, how do I argue with that? Um, but that's a very deep part of deep part of uh, Russian thinking, and, and uh, it explains some of their tol tolerance to their regime. And it's very antithetical to you know the American concept of, of taking uh, personal ownership, um, respecting power. You know, I, I watched the. Um, I'm going to run over like five minutes. Um, I remember watching the three debates. Uh, and, and at one point, I think in the second debate, a conservative moderator asked Hillary, okay, so you're going to make a no-fly zone. What are you going to do if a Russian jet flies into it? And I said, please tell them you're going to shoot it down. And I'm saying that from, as someone who very much wants to have better relations between U.S. and Russia, but unless you show power. Um, and she, she didn't answer the question she, she, because she didn't want it to look more like a hawk than she already did. I understand that. But from a Russian perspective, a, a building better relations, that would have been a, a, a much better 
mistake, uh, a better, better move. Um, so I think she made a mistake. And even um, you know, Trump's victory, that's, that's kind of like a political Stalingrad for the Russians. I mean, this guy who they wanted um, but didn't really believe would make it into office, th there he is. And um, so that kind of respect for power. Longing for global respect, again, we, those of us uh, with individual relations know the respect has to be earned. Um, but I think that's a fun, at one point in the height of the conflict in 14 or 15, uh, Peskov, Putin's press secretary, said point blank in an editorial in Vedemosti, said well, all we want is respect from the US. Um, and of course, under Obama, they weren't getting that. Um, interesting, consistent theme of veneration of the elderly. I think one of Re Re Reagan's successes with uh, Gorbachev was he was just older and, and came off as being a wiser fellow. And many Russians told me they thought it was really cool that Trump called in Kissinger. I have no idea what Trump and Kissinger talked about, but the idea of calling in the old man who knows something, that's, that's a very Asian, Eastern thing, and, and much of Russia is in Asia. So, um, Now, current uh, Russian mindset. Uh, dualistic as ever, so it's in conflict with itself. For many years, Russians would come, you know, who went to the US for the first time would tell me, you know, I don't understand. They don't really seem to think about us very much there in the US. You know, they, they want part of this respect thing is, is Russians are obsessed with the U.S., even especially now. And the Kremlin has sort of issued orders to reduce the number of headlines about Trump. Um, and you can see this in various state-controlled aggregators and so forth. Um, but it's, it's just over the top right now. And of course, it's, it's like a joke. It's not what they didn't want to be recognized as the meddling, aggressive country. But at least they're, they're there in your face. It's, it's very kind of teenage thinking there. But um, funny headline when the fellow from Fox News was sacked. For, for sexual misconduct. The Russian headline was, man who insulted Putin sacked. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, isolation, xenophobia, yeah. I mean, there's a, in the Russian word is zombification, turning into zombies. The TV propaganda is just hideous, and you can have very strange conversations with intelligent people. Good friends said to me, Krim nam. the Crimea came to us. I said, wait a minute, no, no, we took the Crimea. It didn't come to us. No, no, it came to us. I mean, this is hard to argue with, and it's, it's, it's out there. Um, but you know, this concept that there is no anti-Americanism at, at any broad level, this is very hard to believe. I, I, recent, I always keep an American flag on a pole in front of my house, and I live in a neighborhood where very powerful people live, and no one has uh, cursed me for it, and, and I keep a Russian flag there too. Um, the thing that's actually a little bit more concerning is the younger generation, you know, kids who are studying now who have not didn't go through this uh, nice period, so to speak, and, and they could potentially be long-term very genuinely. But you walk down the street, 90% of the men are wearing blue jeans. Um, Vladimir Putin loves to play the piano and sing Blueberry Hill in English. Um, I really firmly believe, and this is just not my gut, but what I hear from friends and friends of friends, that there's no anti-Americanism in there. I have a nephew who just went through the military service is in the middle of it, and, and I say, are you being preached about some enemy? No, no, we're just here to defend the motherland. And, just, just not that kind of propaganda. So, um, yeah, I talked about the pseudo-militarization of society. We're still harping on, on uh, World War II. It's kind of sad that that's all we've got to talk about. But we have to remember that that is a, it's a big effort at unification. The country has a great potential to fracture, as we saw in the 90s with Chechnya. And, and why is this monster Kadyrov a, a Kremlin poster child? Because he's keeping part of the country under control for Putin, and he likes that. Um, yeah, 80% of the people support Putin, 80% of the people are apolitical. Um, you know, that, that's uh, also a very Asian kind of thing of the public versus private face and, and combined with uh, better our son of a bitch type of thinking. So, um, 
And you know, ironically, we're, we're beginning to re resemble each other. One of my friends said, we have this guy, Zhirinovsky. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's, he's sort of a clown politician, um, very right wing. And he said, we have Zhirinovsky, but we wouldn't elect him. You elected Trump. What do you don't understand? <laughs> Um, and yet there's a, there's a, subtle, a subtle respect when um, people say, uh, you know, this proves what's going on in your country right now, that your institutions work. I don't work. When Vladimir Putin whistles, people will line up to do whatever he says, but is anything within the Constitution or not? They will struggle to see who's first and show that they're doing whatever he asked. And the guy who's, who's last is screwed. He's over. His career is history. So um, very different. Um, truth to me is always strange in the fiction. I assume you're familiar with with um, with uh, Doctor Strangelove and uh, Strangelove, and uh, I mean I just found this way too weird. I mean here we have um, Alexei Sadisky, the uh, ambassador, and here we have Sergei. I mean they even look alike, <laughs> and and then we have um, the scene where he's with uh, Merkin Muffley in the war room, where there's no fighting in the war room. Don't forget that, and then the Oval Office. You're allowed to have lots of fun. Very weird stuff. It never got weird enough for me, as Hunter S. Thompson said. Um, but in, in, in seriously, uh, this madness has consequences. And I can name just a few. Criminology is coming back. I don't know how it is here, but are you noticing more students being interested in Russian things or language or so-so? Okay, kind of a general reaction. I, I was at Cornell last week, and I got the same thing. And it's, I it's Russia and Hewlett-Packard. <laughs> Interest in Hewlett-Packard. I don't know. Um, but certainly with what's going on, I mean, huge blow to U.S. soft power. I mean, the idea that Russians could be laughing at us is, is in terms of our political things. But flip side, of some respect, that, that the system works. Uh, there's, there's the financial expense of, of having to increase your hard power if, if, if you're you know, building up military again and so forth. Um, I do believe that there are places where Russia could cooperate with the rest of the world and do productive things, but it's an isolated state. Mm -hmm. and, and many of my Russians are afraid, are we going to have McCarthy again? And I said, well, I'm going to be the first one to find out, so I'll let you know. And um, meantime, Russia is digging its own uh, grave, but this backlash from its meddling and the irony that I think it was found out that it was an American Nazi living in the Ukraine who was meddling in the French elections, but everyone thinks it's the Russians. Maybe the Russians hired him, who knows? Um, this one I find really a pain in the ass is this virtual iron curtain. From Russia and my IP address, there's so many things I can no longer access. All my mail goes into spam boxes if it gets through at all. Um, American I ISPs are just blocking IP uh, addresses from Russia. My current project is with Patch Adams. I can't get patchadams.org without going through a VPN or a tour or something like that. And that will, you know, that affects, you know, people see that as being a conscious anti-Russian thing or, or whatever. Um, there is this, this ugly side of the stagnated societal development. Um, you know, plenty of absurdities under communism. One student told me, I'm trying to arrange uh, lectures for an American professor in Moscow right now, and a student told me, well, the last time we had a lecture was by a state Duma deputy, a congressman. Um, the uh, leadership of the school handed out questions to the students that they were allowed to ask this, this Russian congressman. I mean, that is so purely Soviet. And the congressman ragged on them for asking stupid questions. So, and that's leading into this generation of younger people that I'm hearing are, are you know, will we'll take pictures taking a crap on the American flag and stuff. I mean, they don't have any idea what any of this means and, and they don't know what we've been through, but, you know, if that stays, that will be <coughs> um, But strange thing here, I mean, here is, is Trump repeating some of the 
concepts, whether consciously or not, that Reagan used. I mean, delegitimizing the opponent by uh, undiplomatic undi rhetoric, um, you know, saying bizarre, nasty things about the opponent to, to put them on the defensive. Um, and yet, the Russians wanted Trump just because of this phrase. He was saying consistently, I will find a common language with those people, with that man. Um, being willing to talk to anyone, as we've seen from Duerte and, and his visit. I really hope he can leverage that with the, the Korean. My brother plays golf at the same uh, golf club as Trump. And he told me literally, you know, in golf you play through. Um, and he said that Trump came by with, by himself in 60 golf carts filled with machine guns and so forth. And without any prompting, he went up to the golfers, including my brother, and said, you know, you know that little guy from North Korea is really under my skin. I got to do something about that. And went off. <laughs> so maybe he will do something about that. And, and maybe he's beginning to get a few good people. <laughs> that sounds strange to say. I'm not sure I believe that. But um, I, I really like the, the, the profile of the new US ambassador uh, who's been assigned to come to Moscow. I was hopeful that he could do a much better job. Than, and the guy who's there now does a good job, too, but he's not a Trump person. And then you have this economic fragility that the Soviet Union had that we have now. It's, it's a very strange time in the economy where it looks good, but the numbers are bad. And, don't know. Um, this burgeoning ideology of neoconservative, anti-homosexual, anti-Western, whatever, it also um, could be the, the essence of a new ideology that's necessary, and the aggressive military behavior of Russia. So there's a lot of similarities. Um, it's to me, it's obvious if, if we want to do anything and make any progress. You know, this idea of showing strength without threatening, kind of rebranding or, or NATO. It's not going to happen now, obviously, with the, the current uh, situation, but. Um, Getting back to economic interaction, and there's very, very little economic interaction between the US and, and uh, Russia right now. Um, it's minimizing hypocrisy. I mean, again, Russians liked it when Trump said, well, we have blood on our hands too. You know, and, and if you want to count the number of dead people on this planet due to the foreign policy of a country, the uh, US would, would do far, be far more of a, a winner in that section than, than Russia, and for obvious reasons. But the point is, um, to me, and this is kind of personal, I, I don't like arrogance, and, and I think, um, so I voted for Putin twice, and I voted for Obama twice. And I'm not happy with the results of either of them, 100%, but I respect both of them. But to me, the Obama administration epitomized uh, the, the fundamental ar arrogance of American foreign policy, and in a conversation, I'm not gonna name the person, it was an off-the-record conversation, but I'll be coy. Um, where the person who was fundamentally responsible for American policy to Russia under Obama summoned uh, journalists to his home in Moscow and said, you know, I can't understand where this whole American anti-Americanism is coming from. Um, and one of the journalists said to him, okay, um, Obama's coming to town, and um, when you had Medvedev in Washington, you took him out for a hamburger. Are you going to do the same thing, or how's it going to work with Obama? And this individual said the following phrase. He said, yeah, we in the Obama administration are roll up your sleeves people. We know, we know that the Chinese and the Russians love those long state dinners. But ha ha ha, I negotiated them down from one and a half hour, seven course meal to a 45 minute, uh, three course meal. And I said to myself, my God, you're not willing to do what they want to do in their country and sit across the table and have a meal, which is well, the second most intimate thing you can do and try and find a common language. You're proud of how freaking arrogant you are. And I walked out of there just depressed, knowing that that's how things were being run, and it's consistent throughout the whole show here. And so um, that idea of eating a little humble pie, uh, which is a strange word to associate with Donald Trump, humble, but 
I think you get my point here, what I'm trying to get at. Russians obviously have to do something about Ukraine. You know, the US, I have the years here, at one point shot down, an, accidentally shot down an Iranian commercial airliner and killed everybody on board in whatever year that was. Within eight years, we, we didn't admit to it, but we paid compensation. You know, Russians need to pay compensation for what was not under their control with their missile and shooting down uh, that, that flight and come to some agreement with Ukraine, which from a financial point of view, the Ukrainians would welcome. Uh, you know, relief of gas debt for 20 years and, and so forth. Politically, it'll be a tough sell, but it, but it could be done, I think. And, uh, you know, I, there are things that can be done together. I mean, Syria, obviously, number one, Middle East as a whole, maybe cooling the earth and maybe going to Mars. So on that open-minded, uh, uh, that op optimistic note, um, I'm finished. And uh, please, questions, comments, criticisms. Thank you very much. So. Um, if you don't mind, I, I want to start things off because I have to run sure. to get back to uh, office hours. I have to leave at 2.30, okay. but you can all continue after I'm gone. Um, so that was a great talk. That was an overview with a lot of food for thought, so it's hard to know where to begin. Maybe one question that um, sort of brings together the first and second part of your talk. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, from your experience and observations over the years, um, how important was the collaboration among technocrats between the two sides, scientists and engineers and people who don't necessarily work for the government, so kind of quasi-track two people. Um, and in some cases, I guess, you know, military contacts and the more technocratic rather than political side. How important um, were those early connections toward the later years of the Soviet Union, later years of the Cold War? Um, how much did that carry over into the 90s? Uh, and how much has that deteriorated now? And then does that connect? Is that either a cause or an effect of the overall deterioration of relations between the two countries on a political level? I, again, being a fundamentally positive person, I, I think those contacts were very, very important. I, I know scientists, I did a lot of work with the Academy of Sciences when I was with Hewlett Packard. Um, and I know scientists on both sides. And, Particularly, I mean, if we're focused on the United States and, and, and uh, the interaction there, I always find that Russians and, and Americans find a very quick affinity. They have a lot in common. Uh, informality, warmth, um, hardworking, and all these other concepts, which are differing a little bit from Europeans with their multiple titles and their business cards and so forth, um, generalizing again. But, you know, you take an example of um, one of the leading mobile operators was founded by a Russian scientist who, you know, he thought he, he had some brilliant system for mobile telecommunications. He injected some technology into that. Um, and he was working for a, a, a post box, a, a secret institute, uh, making things. And he went, you know, he started going to the US and meeting people. And, and they always seemed, and I, I've seen the same thing. You know, my, my wife has been the general director of Verizon in Russia for almost 30 years. And, uh, you know, I've seen the exchanges between the Russian telecoms people and the American telecoms people. and they always find a common language. And, and that spirit of respect, again, first it's respect. Americans are always amazed. I used to take um, people, to, one of my customers was the Mission Control Center, like the Houston for the Russian Space Agency. And uh, people were amazed, particularly from the Cold War generation, to be in this place and be welcome and, and, and learn what they're doing. And, and of course, the Russian space people through NASA have had great cooperation. So I, I think that's there in the film. That's the explanation why there isn't genuine anti-Americanism right now. But those kids who are, you know, are now 20, 18 to 20, maybe 22, who are not getting that experience because of the decline over the years mm. when, 
you know, I, I think it really began to change when the West claimed to want to bring Russia into NATO and change it into a political organization. And Russian representatives started to go into NATO even in the late 90s. And they kind of didn't really feel, I, I think the Cold War didn't end in the minds of the Westerners. I think it ended in the minds of the Russians. So, yeah, we're defeated, we're screwed, we're covered in crap. And maybe we'll, we'll, you know, we'll take your aid in the early days. And I used to get food aid through my kid from German chocolates and, st and stuff um, in school in the 90s. Um, and then, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a romance where then, then they say, well, you're rejected. You know, you're, not, you're not taking me on. So. But I think that's a foundation that it was all very valuable work and um, it, it, could, it could come back. Well, I need to leave. I'll see thank you at the reception tonight, right? No, I got to go for an interview in, 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 in Port Angeles. So I won't be oh, there. thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask a question about non proliferation? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Seems like a great goal that we can all get behind. Yeah. But uh, I don't see any way that we're going to stop Iran or North Korea in the long run. So the question I have is. Mutual assured destruction actually has a pretty good track record. Yeah, yeah. So how upset should we be if one of these other countries gets nukes now? And isn't the risk of us trying to stop North Korea higher than if we live with it? Well, I can only give you sort of a layman's opinion about that. Um, I think, as we've proven in INF, if you get your inspection intrusive enough, you can confirm that someone does not have weapons. And so it's purely up to the Iranians or the North Koreans whether they're willing to trade that card, and it's a huge card, and they don't seem to have much else, and so therefore I don't think they're very likely to trade it for whatever benefits they would get out of being in partnership with the West. Unfortunately, it seems, and Russia's a great example, the more you emphasize the external enemy, the more you get to hold your power base and so forth. So, um, and that's the name of the game. In it's the name of the game, and particularly when you can't get Russia, America, and China. I mean, if Russia and America and China were united and working fiercely on this together on those two particular sore points, um, there could be hope. But uh, you know, fundamentally, a rational person running North Korea would say, "I don't really need nuclear weapons. I need, you know, whatever I need." But they need what they need to fund their Geneva bank accounts and, and so forth. So. Well, I assume they're rational enough to know that if they actually did something, their country would not exist 24 hours later. Yeah, rational is a good word to use on those people. But um, yeah, I, th I think that's true. But at the moment you, you, you have this, this fractured relationship with Russia and the US and the Chinese kind of not 100% clear what they're up to, it, it takes away a lot of rationality. That would, I think if there really was a united front there and it could be, again, with good diplomatic work and some, some horse trading, um, so that, that's, I think, the best hope is to have a united front between those three countries. Throughout your uh, talk, you um, uh, raised issues of, of uh, the values that hold the country together at World War II mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. all these other problems. Uh, and then you will also mention the, uh, the uh, episodically uh, the, uh, the sense that the country could fracture. And then if it's in Chechnya, it's Tatarstan, or whatever, or even the Udmurts. Um, <laughs> the Udmurts are pretty mellow, but <laughs> I get uh, the point. Uh, and so forth. 
So uh, the qu uh, question is, it, 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 what do people, uh, I is there a national idea? Uh, Yeltsin tried to come up with a sort of thing. Is there a national ideology? Putin was very explicit in this point. I mean, he stated, we do not want a national ideology beyond family and motherland, which is pretty mellow if you think about it. I mean, yeah, okay, you make of that what you will. And in truth, you know, I probably, in this article, I overemphasize this, this influence of the state. Most people do not want anything to do with the state and sur can survive and thrive at a very low level without it. Um, and so... Sorry, without what? Without the state. I mean, I, I emphasize the, st the state is everywhere and you, you kind of, it gives you a headache after a while and then you can be in a Western country and if you pay your taxes, you don't really have to deal with state too much. Um, but in, in reality, <clears throat> I think the average person, they really, you know, family is very important. And I you know we have high divorce rates like in the US, but still that, that's a very much fundamental part of, the, I mean, my, I'm overwhelmed by my family sometimes. I mean, I have grandchildren and uncles and aunts coming through all the time. I mean, I love them dearly, but you know, I would be more the American, let the kids come on Sunday for dinner, um, as opposed to living with us half the time. And I'm getting used to, to that, and it makes my wife happy to, to do it her way, so do it her way. Um, but, uh, and this, you know, I asked cousin Misha last week, I, I, and I tell him I'm going to America, and I want to talk about what you think, and I said to him, because in reality, um, you know, the Russian role in World War II is kind of debatable. I mean, they signed the von Ribbentrop Pact in '39, and, and at the end of the day, they were defending their motherland. And, you know, that's one of the things they will do as soon as you get on their soil, unlike the U.S., which, you know, was fighting for ideas and, and friends and so forth. I'm simplifying greatly. But, you know, the, the, this idea of the motherland is really fundamental to them, and they will fight to the death for that. And, uh, you know, allegedly, Mish said, and, and if the new idea from the state is to be against the Americans, you know, I will go out in the street for that too. I'm not trying to believe him. But, um, so these are the things that are fundamentally held. There is no ideology, but you're beginning to get this, my recollection of kind of a Reagan-esque um, moral majority thing. And it's part of the re rejection, whereas before in the 90s, everything Western was, yes, please, let's try and copy that and follow that and sort of this Peter the Great type of thing. Now there's a lot of rejection. We don't need you. You don't need us, we don't need you. Um, it's, it's this teenager, pissed off teenager, you know, stealing the family car type of attitude. So um, that's what's, what's kind of emerging at a low level. And the question is, how much can that be controlled? I mean, the state does influence the way a majority of people think, um, at least publicly. Is there a connection between nationalism and economic prospects? Yeah, I always look for a good definition of nationalism. Is, is nationalism loving your country? Is that patriotism? Or, or give me your definition. So well, I I'm, I'm thinking of you know, the, uh, the greater uh, motherland and a more aggressive stance in the world as opposed okay. to just being patriotic. Yeah. Um, I think you know, the, the, the situation with, with the Ukraine is, is pretty clear, as I said. You know, the US would not allow a new Russian or Chinese base in Cuba now and Russia was not going to allow even a hint of a NATO base in Ukraine, done. Um, and uh, these other things, you know, on the border, fighting with the Georgians and, and, and making trouble in Moldavia and so forth, I think that's also about having that buffer thing going on around them that's under their control and a little bit messy. Um, and uh, to try and answer questions about economics, I mean, that's, economics are very strange because 
people are so well, well, I was in Nizhny Novgorod, it's, it's a city of a million people, and I think we have maybe 10 of them, and it was in a shopping mall, and I, I just, I went like this, and I could have been anywhere in the United States of America. The people were dressed, they were getting overweight, um, and uh, so there's this kind of weird prosperity. I mean, it's, it's taken a nose that at, at one point, just before the Crimea thing, Russia was going to become the largest car market in Europe, outpacing Germany. And the Russian government did a brilliant thing and made all the car manufacturers say, you build an assembly factory here, you get this tariff. You don't, you get this tariff. And so all the major manu uh, manufacturers, almost the open plants in various parts of Russia, started building ecosystems. It was a genuine good industrial policy. Um, but it's fragile. And, and as I said, they're willing to put up with a lot. You know, they're not upset about the absence of good cheese, which many of them don't realize that's a Russian anti-sanction and not a Western sanction. I have to kind of remind people that we don't have Parmesan cheese anymore, not because the Italians don't want to sell it to us, but because government said, well, you're not going to do business with us, so we're not going to do business with you. So it's kind of a weird state, and the ruble nosedived, I mean, it twice lost its value, and yet inflation, you know, is 5-7%. But there are a lot of factories that are kind of Stagnant, but that's kind of the advantage of the oligarch system is that if things get ugly somewhere, and this has happened in the past in the last five, seven years, I remember I can't what plant it was, but you know, Putin kicked butt on the oligarch and he had to do the right thing for the workers, and it's weird. It does not, it's not a very healthy economy, but it sort of works, and it's certainly not very free. I mean, I, I'm registered as a small businessman there, and I have small businessmen friends, and, and it's, it's tough. So. There is a relationship, but not a flamingly, the brown shirts are coming kind of thing. Not yet. That would be my response. Yeah, yes, please. Uh, when you mentioned factories, and you mentioned doing right by the workers, I wonder what the state of unionism is. The state? Uh, oh, unionism, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, good, good question. I mean, it was very strong in the Soviet system, because Profsoyuz, they, they call them, but now almost none, really. I cannot think of, of any, from the time I was working in the newspaper and, and after that, any kind of significant... I mean, once in a while, <laughs> there was a bizarre thing where uh, some of the Aeroflot stewardesses, who were generally quite svelte, um, some of them didn't get a job because they'd gotten overweight or something, and there was a, a kind of a professional association or union that was kind of supplying them with lawyers. But that's kind of the, the, the exception. You just don't hear about them. Because in industry is way, way down. I mean, it's... Agriculture is booming, actually, interestingly, because of the sanctions. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about agriculture. Yeah. Uh, uh, how much of it is private? How much of it is uh, cooperative? Co uh, I can't quote figures. I know that the company I used to work for, the Yevtushenkov and his uh, Sistema, is the largest private agriculture holder in, in the country. Um, I think uh, there's been quite a movement to, to get things into private hands and lots of joint ventures. You know, Finnish milk, the label will say Finnish quality milk from Russian cow or something like that. It's kind of funny. Um, and so uh, beef companies and, and, and grain, I think. I mean, the state is a heavy player in the market, but more on the infrastructure side and so forth. Uh, that's my impression. Infrastructure, infrastructure side in terms of financing? Or financing is a, is a big thing. You know, these private and uh, you know, oligarch type companies will get loans from the state banks and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, roads, but even roads are done by private companies frequently now in Russia. So I think it's far less, far less than it was in the Soviet system, and, and private sector is, is quite strong in agriculture. So we have these, these large agricultural enterprises that 
uh, some, it's a foreign, often a foreign presence, a state presence. The state presence is, is almost minimal. I don't, I can't name a, you know, there, there are, it was a state agriculturally oriented bank. Like who owns the land? Well, for example, Yevtushinkov uh, is one of the biggest private land, agricultural landowners. Um, there's still, uh, land reform has been going on for several hundreds of years in Russia, but um, uh, the agricultural sector is one of the last ones kind of getting itself cleaned up a bit, and this is why Yevtushenko was able to get control of a lot of land, but then you're obligated to grow something on the land. I mean, they're, they're clamping down on, on speculation. And right. whom are they buying it from? From the state. The state would be the original owner. The state, yeah. not the collective farm, not, not the oldest. Not the no, the oblast is the state. It could be regional governments for sure. There's a, a program now to give away land in the Far East to individuals and, and uh, private individuals. They want investment. That's always been the, the theme. So turning, turning East is what it's been called. You know, the Americans in Western Europe don't want to deal with us, so we're going to deal with the Chinese and, and the Vietnamese and, and, and the Indians. And there's actually a program where individual Russians can get land grants in the Far East. And of course, they'll be somehow sucked up into the, the oligarchs. But it's a mix, but far less state presence than you might think. That's my general impression. I, I can't. I have another question, but I'll see the floor. Just fine, but, but I have this problem. When you say the state, you know, but then if it turns out it's this local unit. Yeah, the state which is the state. Is, you know, ultimately headed by somebody who's appointed from Moscow. Yes, yes. But, you know, uh, it's really hard for me to decide who owns what. I mean, who really controls property the, uh, uh, in the agricultural thing? I, I don't have a full answer for you, but I don't think it's a hard one to, to, to research. You could start with the, the Sistema company that is, and you could figure out how much land they've got. And as I said, they're the largest private landowner in agriculture. Um, that, that means there's some still state land to be had, but you can be pretty much sure not, not much is going on. You can still see, you know, the area where I live, it's 27 kilometers outside of Moscow, and you have these giant fields where you keep saying to yourself, there's going to be a shopping mall there, there's going to be a shopping mall there, no shopping mall appears, and that's probably because it's zoned for agriculture, it was from the Soviet period, and is not being rezoned back. But in other cases, it does get rezoned back for, you know, people pay some bribes, and so it's very kind of messy for sure the whole land system. Because now, as the economy is sort of getting tougher, the state is looking for more ways to get tax revenue. And so there were debates about putting a land tax under apartment buildings. So if I, I own a house, and uh, we pay a land tax for that. Um, if I own an apartment, I don't pay a land tax because the land under the apartment building is usually owned by the munici municipality. Um, but they wanted to start charging the apartment owners for uh, land tax. Um, Lots of these little well, again, that's what, but the, the municipality, and yet, uh, uh, who, 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 uh, who, how does a mayor really get to uh, uh, be a mayor? Is, is it electoral or appointed? Oh, I think we voted <laughs> for our mayor in, 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 in Solva recently. I mean, they change this every couple of years. From, from appointed governors to, I think there's actually planned some gubernatorial elections. I mean, the point, the, I'm not um, apathetic about it, but I have no belief that I can influence who's going to get that position, whether I vote or not. I mean, that's the democratic system is a bit of a farce. Question on SDI. Mm -hmm. Reagan 
attempted to sell that on the grounds that it's purely defensive, what's not to love. Russians never bought that argument. Do you have a sense for why? Because they believe it's designed to um, uh, change the balance of power, strategic balance of power, and because as soon as the Americans think that they can uh, detect an incoming missile from further away, they might launch their own. And that, that's pure military, personal, and it's still, that hasn't changed. I mean, it's interesting, I think we, we put something in South Korea recently for regional, okay. you know, and, 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 and Obama was pushing the, the shield in Europe, and, and, and Bush was, and so forth. That's one of those thorns in the side, but I, I think it's also one that could be used as a negotiating chip. But we know, point blank, uh, Matlock, Jack Matlock, who's the ambassador, and I think is one of the clearest thinkers about Russia still, he's an ambassador when, when I was there in his 80s, but uh, um, you know, he was pointing out he gave a presentation somewhere where Putin was at the same time, sometime in the last five years. And, and you know, he, Matlock spoke reasonably about the relation. Putin got up and just railed on the Obama administration's efforts to build a missile shield. So that's a that's a hot point. Still, and again, it's a huge investment. Just like when Trump was saying, even before the election or right after, how we have to modernize our nuclear forces. When the U.S. prints money, okay, we'll spend a couple billion dollars on that. Russia cannot afford to do that, and they know it. And at the same time, he's going to have people behind him, his general, saying, okay, let's do that. Let's compete. They're going to make better missiles than us. How much of that economic fragility is due to the state of oil? Oh, the, the economy is way too dependent on oil. Um, and, you know, this was supposedly the promises of, mid, you know, we have... Putin, and then we have Medvedev, who's sort of the high-tech kind of guy, and you know, he was promising under his alleged rule, which was not a rule, uh, and since then to, to wean the economy from oil, but it, they have not succeeded in that yet. So there's not much in the way of push for renewables there? There's lots of words, but if you look at the numbers and, and the amount of oil revenue our, our GDP depends on and so forth, it's, it's unfortunate that they have not made progress in that. You mentioned the younger uh, generation. Um, several capacities. Um, uh, so we, we have this tradition of, of very high level uh, achievements in uh, all sorts of uh, fields that require a lot of education. Um, but we also hear uh, about the corruption of the educational system here and, and, and the sort of disinterest. Uh, is Russia losing its intellectual capital? I think yes. That's my opinion. Could you elaborate on that? Again, you know, I, I, I plug in and out from time to time. I was very plugged in when I, when I was with the paper and, and then some time away from that. And now, just in the last couple of months, I've been organizing this tour of this professor from Cornell and pitching young people in universities and so forth. And I gave that example of, of you know, how can you have intellectual <laughs> growth when the administration is handing out question cards? Um, you know, a big push to study abroad. Um, the one thing that they, they changed the draft from three years down to one year and in theory every young Russian man between the ages of 18 and 27 must have served a year in the military um, a way to improve or get out of that or, or, or ameliorate it was to go to like ROTC I mean we had ROTC here but there were certain universities that were credited with that and that increased enrollment but it didn't increase the quality of the education. And what I hear from parents is, is general disappointment with the education system. There is a burgeoning private education system, particularly at the secondary school level, um, where you get some really brilliant people with their visions of, of education. And, and uh, uh, again, in Moscow, Moscow is not Russia, as we know, but um, 
very fragile as well, and I haven't heard a lot of good about it. And, you know, you, you, you see, I remember when I joined the paper, there was an, we did an interview with the two latest Russian physicists who had gotten the Nobel Prize, and they're living in London. And you know, there's a reason for that, because they don't feel that they can, can they and their families, you can't, this is, you know, you can make Skolkova, which is phenomenal sort of Oz of, of high-tech R&D, but at the end of the day, if people, the minds don't want to live there, and the competition, you know, the world is global now, and this whole weirdness with Trump and his investments, it kind of proves that we're so tightly associated. It's almost good that, that Trump has investment from Russians. I mean, I would rather it was Nigerians or Turks or someone less politically sensitive, but it doesn't make a difference. It's not about the Russians, it's about Trump not being honest, and that's why we will reject that situation. But um, the, you know, if you're a promising student and, and you know, you want to, to get the best education, you're not necessarily going to stay in Russia if you can find some way. And, and you know, on the really high end, I think Western universities, maybe, you know, U.S. competition is very fierce, but there are other up-and-coming com countries, India uh, and so forth, that, that want to broaden their intellectual base and, and uh, European universities heavily pitch Russians. You find advertisements for U.K. and, and you know, advertising to get Russians for MBAs and, and, and other things. So is China reaching out? China is everywhere. <laughs> um, tourism of Chinese is way up, way, way up. I mean, that's a start. You know, that's kind of where it starts. It's way up everywhere. Um, about education, I don't know, to be honest with you, but I wouldn't be surprised. So with respect to the uh, attempts by Russia to disrupt democracy mm -hmm. here and elsewhere, do you think of that as, well, duh, of course, or something different? And it's, if it's a duh, of course, is it? intended to uh, get a Trump in power or just to disrupt the system? It's intended, uh, I, I, you said, of course, like, of course it happened. I believe it, yeah, I have no reason to believe it. And most Russians do not believe it. They just think it's another Western made up mm -hmm. bunch of crap. Um, but I think it's certainly possible and likely, and I think it's meant to send a message. A, we can do this. B, your, your democratic system is not as great as you think it is. Um, and see, they, they didn't, I don't think they believed Trump was going to win, you know. Uh, so more disruption and Disruption, message, sending uh, a message. Trying to achieve a specific um, You know, and, uh, and, and uh, at multiple levels, I think, is, is, would be the first argument. But they would love it if, if someone who was willing to talk to them would, would take power. They don't, I don't think they expect miracles, but, um, yeah. Is it legitimate for us to... Uh, do the same thing under different flags through the Soros uh, Open Society uh, uh, Foundation, all the NGOs, all that Michael McFall uh, stuff. Uh, is, is that interference in Russian politics? I think you know we need to be less hypocritical. The problem is there's a disconnect in time. Um, as I said, I'm, I, I love history. I, I'm qualified as a historian, but I, you know, I was studying the birth of the United States, 17, late 1700s, early 1800s, and we had the Alien and Sedition Acts. Why did we have them? Because we were afraid the British were gonna meddle in our new system, period. You know, that's, it's just the same thing 200 years later in Russia. And, you know, the point is to be, and, and you, you, you look and you see um, Victoria Nuland handing out cookies in, in, in the Ukrainian revolution, I mean, is that her job? And I don't, as a taxpayer in the US, I don't particularly like that. I think her job is to find a common language and promote US interests, not hand out cookies at, at, at rallies. And um, again, I, I think I was rushed over this, but 
in the Russian mindset is, is a deep sense of history. Um, and it, you can take the 1,000-year frame, the 400-year frame, but the current Russian government, you know, the, again, over 45, they remember the communist system. They remember the Russian Revolution, which was the Russian Revolution. It was a color revolution, you know, except it was violent. But it was a, a minority bunch of people taking advantage of a bunch of disgruntled people who are ready to go out in the streets for just about anything and, and under a horrible system. And they remember this, and that, that's you know, one of their biggest fears. And, and um, so I, I, st I wouldn't stop. I mean, I have this program where I, I, I convinced the US Embassy to give a stipend to my former professor at Cornell to come and give lectures about US history, US law, and rock and roll, and a couple other topics. I think it's great. It's open. You know, we're, I helped the embassy pitch various state, because they're all state at the end of the day, or almost all state, organizations. MGU wouldn't, you know, I'm sorry, we're too busy, or too, too many students are doing something else, you know, bullshit. Um, and I know that, but, but the higher school of economics took his lecture on, on uh, running a university. Is this Evangelista, or uh, who, who is he? Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I, he's a good guy. Um, his name is Glenn, Glenn um, Altshuler. He has nothing to do with Russia. He's not a Russian person, he's a historian, but he's been around Cornell for 40 years and, and knows how the university is run, and he knows you know, rock and roll and baseball, and uh, he's just a great, and he knows American politics, which I thought would be a real kick-ass lecture of explaining, because when Trump first took over, my Russia said, oh, he's going to zamachit, he's going to put everybody in their place. I said, you know, it doesn't quite work that way in the US. No, but he's the president, it's just let's see what happens. And explaining those more subtle nuances of how the American political system worked, which even, you know, my simple relative from the boondocks said, you know, your democratic institution works. I mean, he's a very curious guy. He studies more than maybe your average Russian does, but explaining balance of power and so forth and using Nixon and as an example, and Trump to the other, but um, yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, but. Um, you might put works in quotes. Yeah, but, but we've got a lot to be proud of here. I'm using my, I keep switching my wheeze, please catch me on that, but um, I am proud. I mean, I'm proud when, you know, it, it's hard to explain when, the, again, the Russian propaganda is showing blacks and whites fighting on the streets about police brutality. And I explained, but you know, this is good. Like, no one's really shooting into the crowd. And at the end of the day, politicians who have to get reelected pay attention and they'll man find money for body cams and stuff. It's a little progress. You know, so. Yeah. And when people go against Trump, they might get a lawsuit that they're not going to get. They're not afraid to do that. You know, there's a very old Russian joke about the Russian American arguing about freedom of speech. And the American says, I can go down to the White House fence and scream, you know, Obama's an asshole. You can go to the, down to the Kremlin wall and scream Obama's an asshole, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and, and yeah, and that is, you know, un unfortunate. I do sometimes watch what I say. I mean, I don't say a lot. I'm not a public figure. But, you know, at that last speech that I was telling you about where the Ukrainians and Russians, the, the Russian attache came up to me afterwards and thanked me for my balanced position. Okay, I've accomplished something here. Because I wasn't just praising. I, I tend to be a little more pro-Russian when I'm in a Western, and, but I want to give this speech in Russian. I'm a little more pro. As my, as my professor, I'm inviting her, when he gives a lecture, he says, my goal is for you to leave here depressed. Which he's really saying, I want you to think. And I've given you something to think about in a perspective you didn't have, which maybe might upset you, but makes you think that, that much. So I hope I've depressed you. Nobody can watch the news these yes. days without being depressed. <laughs> it's a little more right now.
How do people react to the uh, Alexei Mitch Nobel Prize and, and her writing? Uh, I know what you're talking about. I even read some of her stuff. I don't float in such intellectual circles. And the people who would care would be very pleased with that. But your average person, I mean, uh, I missed another little statistic here. My professor from Cornell, who I had a slide, it was very funny, um, about the, the Perry slide where I was talking about how it's, it's basically both sides are to blame. And, and it was said in Russian, um, I was trying to think of it takes two to tango. And, and he gave me, um, you can't play patty cakes with one hand. Sort of the Russian equivalent. But then he said, but look, that's not, the, the Russian mentality says someone has to be to blame. And it's not us. You know, it's, there's always someone else to blame. Um, and um, what was I that sounds on? strangely familiar from something more local. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I thinking? Uh, you asked me about Alexeyevich and that, and uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Something in the next slide. Well, you know, it, uh, I sign that uh, students, and uh, it's 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 gut wrenching uh, stuff. Mm -hmm. but I just I just really wonder how. Uh, no, in the in the literary, ah, I was going to say that the problem is like in many places, people don't read as much as they used to. I'm still a, a good book culture. I've been, spent a lot of time in the book circuit in Russia when my Russian version of my book came out. Um, but uh, my, that professor did an analysis of Russian film, Russian, purely Russian-made film over the last five years. He says, it's just depressing. It's nihilistic. There are no real heroes. And, you know, as objectively, the, the, the characters that are supposed to be admirable are just disgusting, that no, no one, you can't be patriotic about them because they're, you know, uh, beat each other. I mean, even if you look at the famous, it was a good movie, um, Leviathan. Maybe some of you saw that. It was non-government funded, which is very rare. Most film in Russia has some government funding in it. Um, portrayal of a poor guy in the provinces oh, who, one, yes. who gets okay. his house taken away by the local priest in the end of the day. And it's just sad. There's no heroes. It's, we're no real heroes unless they have giant machine guns and stuff. And that's you know, part of that new, uh, younger generation, which has me a little concerned. Well, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so, again, lucky to be here with you, and I, I thank you for, for hearing my tales. And uh, thank, you. Um, thank you. I'm available uh, by email, and, and uh, you know, if I can answer any question or be useful and, and just keep promoting thinking and depression <laughs> and communication, I'm happy to do that. Thanks. Thanks.